that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. This is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor of the North American Anglican and your host. And I'm joined today by co-host Deacon Andrew Brazier. Hey, this is Andrew here. Glad to be back, Jesse. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I've got my uh, my cup is full, and um, that's that's not a metaphor. That's I literally am drinking from a cup, and uh, my my heart is excited to dig into Roman numeral eight of Paul Elmer Moore's essay, "The Spirit of Anglicanism." How about you? Sounds great. Doing good. Sadly, I'm down to half a cup. But that's all right, you know. Uh, my cup still runneth over, or it did earlier today. So, <laughs> figuratively that, on that one. Usually oh, okay. that's literal. Sometimes I, I do pour a little bit too much coffee, but yeah, yeah I was going to say nothing. Nothing that a that a bounty sheet couldn't take care of. Not that we're it sponsored by them. Not if, sponsored. If they want to write a check out to us, you can send that to. Yeah. One, two, three, Miserable Offenders Way. Yeah, Miserable Offenders Way. I like it. Hey, that reminds me, uh, sometimes I read some old uh, some old Anglican uh, uh, books that are from the Church of England, and they're, I think they come from some publishing house on, like, Paternoster Way or something. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I always, I always like, I was like, oh, well, how how charming. Why Why do I have the picture that, like, in England, everything is just charming and wonderful, and every, true. every squirrel has a, a monocle and uh, and is very polite. And you know, I just <laughs> hey, chap, yeah, can I, I bum a nut from you? That is right. not a British accent, by the way. I, I didn't want to even go full accent because I just figured it's uh, really bad. So I kind of went half accent, which could have been worse. So, if you ever wondered what a southern British squirrel would sound like, that was it. Yeah, if you ever wondered, uh, that's what we're here for at Miserable Offenders. And if you were offended by that, well, that's what we do. Um, hey, Mel goes to Miserable Offenders at Jesse Nigro. Yeah, one two three Jesse Nigro <laughs> dot com dot com. One two three. There we go. Um, well, on that note, before we uh, <laughs> before we have Completely any more, digress. yeah, complete digressions. <laughs> We'd better uh, get into our reading here. I'll take the first chunk from section Roman numeral eight, um, but I think we've left off on this point previously that he was making about uh, the nature, the pragmatic nature of Anglicanism that shows up here in the 17th century. Yes, yes. So just to give our audience are people who are reading along a little refresher of where we're at and where we've come let's uh dive right in but perhaps the full force of the word pragmatic as applied to the church of england can be seen even better in her attitude towards the priesthood and its sacramental function we may conclude that the Anglicans, particularly at the early stage of the controversy over the Eucharistic sacrifice, rather shunned the term priest and even went so far as to deny that a minister should in any true sense be so-called. This Hooker declares explicitly and the, quote, pious and profoundly learned Joseph Mead end quote, defines priest as the English word presbyter, not sacerdos, as being a minister rather than a sacrificer. It is fair, however, to add that the direction of Anglican theology 
was towards a more Catholic, even a more Roman view, and Hicks, in his monumental treatise on the Christian priesthood, asserted, which is the work of a non-juror, falls out of our period, was in the true line of development from Laud and Cousin and Thorndike. Well, Andrew, what do you think? Uh, is more right here that the, the Anglican view of the priesthood was on a trajectory closer to that of Rome? I would say more is more wrong than more right on this one. And <laughs> Tell me more. So, <laughs> man, there we go. Uh, we just in the podcast right there. So, now, what, uh, what I would say is that I'm intrigued that he makes his claim that there was a shunning of the term priest in the early period of the uh, English Reformation. And granted, the Book of Common Prayer, the first edition, doesn't come out until 1549 which is uh, well after there's been a split between Henry VIII and the Pope. But at the same time, the Book of Common Prayer, when that liturgy comes out, it uses the term priest. It also uses the term minister, because, of course, at times a deacon can assist and do parts of the service. So I'm not really sure where he's getting that from. Um, I won't say that you know English reformers didn't use the word minister more often, than using the term priest, but I do agree with them that uh, the English reformers pointed out that priest in the English uh, was coming from the term presbyter, which is a, an Anglic anglicized version of the Greek word, uh, which is in the New Testament. When commonly, depending upon your translation, you know, uh, it's typically not going to say priest, but uh, sometimes you may have a translation that reads presbyter. Typically, it's elder, is what you'll see in the English translations. And mm. that word elder is coming from a Greek word, which I cannot pronounce the Greek, because I'll be honest, I, I do not know the Greek. But the anglicized version of it is presbyter, which in English, uh. over time, becomes known as priest, simply. So one of the arguments the reformers make, including the English reformers, is that the priests that we have in, in the Church of England and the Greater Anglican Communion are not priests in the sacrificial sense, but are priests in the presbyter, going back to the New Testament sense. They are elders who are leading the church, who are uh, presiding, or the presidents over the service. So to that extent, I would say, no, it, it is not in a more Roman manner that the uh, English, uh, the Anglican priesthood uh, tends toward. However, I will certainly give him that unlike uh, other classical uh, Protestant denominations, that the Church of England and the Anglican Communion kept what it received from the Catholic and Orthodox, little c Catholic, little o Orthodox um, faith of having your, your presbyters, your priests, and your bishops you know, ordained by laying on of hands, which is drawn from the New Testament, and saying a, a prayer in which you are ordained and you are given the responsibilities and the duties and the powers of the Holy Spirit to actually host and have and serve uh, the communion uh, to preach the Word of God. Uh, and uh, in the case of if you're a, a priest or a bishop, uh, to uh, absolve uh, sins. So there is a retention of what has always been there, which has always been Catholic and Orthodox. But there is also certainly the Reformed aspect of noting that this person, this man, does not have the ability to sacrifice Christ, because the sacrifice is once and for all, as you can see from the 39 articles, but that you truly do receive the body and blood of Christ, you know, um, for those who have faith and are receiving uh, the body and blood of Christ. So it's a... You know, reformed view of the priesthood and uh, the episcopate, uh, along with retaining that which has always been true and been Catholic uh, across the board. Yeah, um, that's yeah. It's interesting because actually, even as you were um, describing how Anglicans are maybe set apart from uh, other uh, continental um, magisterial Reformation traditions. I was listening and thinking, yeah, but you know, um, everything apart from the involvement of bishops, um, and even that was actually th the case uh, in the Scandinavian Lutheran context, 
um, really was th true. Um, you know, Calvin writes saying, we wish we had bishops, but even in light of not having bishops, we still maintain the ancient or you know, ordination uh, form with laying on of hands and etc. And and uh, you know there is a uh, confession and absolution in the Lutheran tradition. I'm not sure uh, about that in the Reformed tradition. Actually, uh, I don't know if you uh, you know, but I don't know if there was private. I'll, I confess, I would love to hear from one of our listeners. Uh, you know who can track us down and, and reach out to us. But I do recall from my reading of the uh, Geneva liturgy that Calvin put together uh, and the one in uh, uh, Strasbourg that there's always the public confession which mm -hmm. to their credit, to the reformed credit, and we inherited that from the, the, the Anglican side because we still have a, a public uh, penance and confession prior to receiving communion and likewise in the reformed tradition they did the same because they were looking back to the example of the early liturgies of the early church in which originally you would just confess your sin individually to the entire public, and then it became more of a public, unified uh, confession. So, to a certain right. extent, I, I would argue that our Reformed brethren have kept uh, the forgiveness of sins being placed uh, in a public confession. And in the contemporary church here in America, you may see where the, uh, the minister in a Reformed congregation may not say, you know, I absolve you because they're afraid of that being too much of the Roman view, mm -hmm. but they'll proclaim that Christ has forgiven you. And it's still the same, uh, not the same theology, obviously, but the same good news that Christ has forgiven you of your sins. Um, and the only difference between the Anglican church and kind of your, your stereotypical, and I could be wrong, some Reformed pastors may come forth and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, I forgive you of your sins. But in the Anglican liturgy, in the Book of Common Prayer, it retains that, that the, uh, the priests and the bishops uh, are, are not given the power to forgive sins, but they have been delegated the authority to pronounce that good news, that Christ has forgiven you of your sins for those who truly <laughs> repent. Yeah, there's something uh, they they have the the public confession and absolution in the uh, the liter the Lutheran liturgy as well, and I think there's you know something along the lines of I as an ordained minister of Christ you know uh, by authority of my office pronounce forgiveness and and so so yeah they, they clearly um, a, a great deal of of what Anglicans um, sort of celebrate as as their Reformed Catholic identity is something that they share with with uh, the other you could say high or magisterial protestant traditions but it's true that we uh we maintained the uh, the episcopate and um there there may be other other differences as well i know that in the sort of german lutheran tradition um they tended to be more uh sort of Presbyterian or even even congregationalist in their polity, um, and so that that might be another distinction. Uh, having bishops does seem to make a difference in the attitude, mm -hmm. uh, um, so that's that's something that I think is is noteworthy. But th so the so the issues here are, um, as you stated earlier, this issue of is it a sacrificing priesthood. Is this a priesthood as a continuation of the Aaronic Old Testament um, role, right? Mm -hmm. Or is this something different? And the other issue, which he hasn't brought up yet, um, is, that is commonly brought up, is does this constitute, when we have an ordination service, when the laying on of hands takes place, does this constitute some sort of ontological change, people might say, or is there an indelible mark? Does a priest, is a priest somehow sort of in a spiritual or mystical sense different from uh, any, any other baptized layman? And I think, you know, the answer that Luther and, and the, the Continental Reformers give is, is uh, absolutely not. And yet that is sort of a, a debated and contested question in the Anglican tradition. But, yeah, may, it's, but it's, maybe we, should, we don't want to get too far ahead. <laughs> this is true. We can continue on. And the only thing that I'll quickly add is that 
you know, in terms of what Anglicans view, this has definitely been something that's divided the Anglican viewpoint as to, like you said, is there some sort of, you know, distinguishing mark that has separated, uh, you know, I would say, not only separate the vocation, because every vocation is separate, but it's really set aside someone in the vocation of the priesthood or the, uh, as a bishop that makes them different, wholly different, uh, wholly both W-H-O-L-L-Y and also wholly H-O-L-Y, <laughs> uh, different from uh, a layman. And, uh, but I think that we'll get a little bit more from that as we continue on and yeah. I'll pick up on this next paragraph. But the acuteness of the debate centered not so much on the priesthood itself as on the various orders of ministry, more especially on the episcopate. Here, as we have seen, the Anglicans held primarily to a view that might be regarded as a sort of compromise. With Rome, they adhered to the historic authority of bishops against the immoderate hostility of the Protestants to any distinction of orders, while at the same time they stood with the Reformation in disavowing the equally immoderate pretensions of the Bishop of Rome. The pragmatic note is felt in the kind of arguments by which they defended their medial position. Here indeed we encounter some differences in method. Certain controversialists contend that the distinct order of the Episcopate can be justified by statements in the Bible. Others, including notably Hooker, prefer to base their defense on the usage of sub-apostolic antiquity and on the continuous tradition of the Church since then. But in either case, their ultimate appeal is to expedience and thus pragmatic, though pragmatic in the sense that the values discovered by practice are spiritual as well as physical. It is in harmony with such arguments that the most convinced Episcopalians hesitated to rank the divine origin of Episcopacy among the credenda, and thus it was common opinion, or thus it was common, excuse me, thus it was a common opinion among them that the Protestant communions on the continent which possessed no bishops at all, or at best no unbroken succession of bishops, should not for that reason be denied their place as a true, though errant, branch of the universal church. But they were insistent on the demonstrably historic fact that the integrity of the church has been sustained chiefly by the recognition of Episcopal authority, and their vast scholarship was nowhere better displayed than in their fierce rebuttal of the Roman efforts to deprive the English church of its Catholicity by discovering flaws in the consecration of the Elizabethan bishops. Very definitely, excuse me, very definitely, they held that the spiritual function of the priesthood was proven by experience to depend for its higher and purer efficacy on the apostolic succession of the bishops. And from this pragmatic argument, they go to infer that episcopacy, even though devised by man rather than commanded by revelation, was sanctioned by providence to be the means of preserving the church as the channel of grace. Jesse, what do you think on his take on this part of history and where he kind of ends up at? Um, well, so he begins with making this claim that Here's here's those pragmatic Anglicans again. We're uh, we're not immoderate like those other Protestants were by uh, eschewing episcopacy and any kind of church order. So I have to give him uh, uh, a you know I don't know if this is a pass fail or what, but um, I, I have to give him a low marks on that statement because. And, and, and it's hard to read whether or not... I think that, honestly, at the time that Moore is writing, there was a lot less known about sort of what forces led the Protestant churches and the Reformation churches to take the eventual shape that they did. Um, but I think it's pretty universally understood now that although theologically it's true that Luther's, you know, and the Reformations sort of agreed that um, bishops weren't necessary for the church, that actually they were sort of seen as generally desirable um, insofar as they would be uh, evangelical. And so this idea that they, well, they just hated church order, you know, it, and that Anglicans, on the other hand, were we were just so pragmatic. Is just it's just a false reading of history. the The facts are are wrong there. Um, and if uh, if we want to say that uh, 
the pretensions of the Bishop of Rome were immoderate. Well, I can get on board with that, at least. Uh, other than that, he kind of... Well, he has these uh, this statement about, so how do we as Anglicans, or have we, historically viewed the validity of these other sister churches? And on this point, uh, I think he does sort of get hit a little closer to the mark. It's We've never historically said that they're not churches. Um, that would eventually be the turn that people like uh, Pusey would make. Um, but even, even so, that was sort of a late turn in the Tractarian uh, controversies. I was reading just the other day how... Uh, Actually, um, Lutheranism was seen as like sort of a, a useful weapon by the uh, Oxford movement Tractarians early on because here were Reformed Catholics that were using uh, mass vestments and you know ritual and the like. And so they were saying, look, here's legitimate Protestants that are following after Luther who are using all of these Catholic elements, so why shouldn't we? And even uh, when it comes to arguments for uh, regeneration and baptism, uh, so Pusey's tract on baptism, he actually mentions the, the Lutheran church, the Lutheran churches. But then, as I was reading in this article, <laughs> I guess his convictions changed, and he later went and revised these tracts to say the Lutheran communities and sort of unchurched them unofficially, <laughs> which is, uh, I think, unfortunate. But in, in relation to the, the present discussion, I would say that that later attitude of Pusey was... Uh, a sort of aberration and certainly not the mainstream attitude of, of Anglicanism. And I think you made a good point earlier that uh, the Scandinavian Lutherans maintained the Episcopate, so it was not as though the magisterial reformers were seeking to create a, a brave new world of church order. And, you know, to that extent, you know, Scandinavia, you know, had a, a favorable monarch who was, uh, you know, uh, amendable to the Reformation occurring in that country, right. just like in England, so the bishops were retained. Meanwhile, on the continent, you had so much opposition coming from uh, the bishops uh, that you could not have a bishop who was in the secession uh, to to stay with the Protestant cause uh, on the ground in the continent to, to form the apostolic secession. Um, and so... It really he ignores history to a certain extent because, you know, Calvin and uh, Bucer and uh, you know the others who are on the continent are put in a situation where you don't have a bishop who's going with you to the Protestant cause. Therefore, you by default could not just recreate uh, Episcopate. However, there is an argument historically going back to the 300s that the Church in Alexandria uh, commonly ordained its own bishop not by hands of other bishops, but through the presbyters, the priests who were there in the Church of Alexandria's jurisdiction. They would gather together, select the bishop, lay hands on, uh, on him, and he would become the bishop, the archbishop of Alexandria. And that was an argument that, uh, as I recall, was, was made, if not by Calvin, then by perhaps Bucer or others on the continent to demonstrate that look, we're not unchurched. You know, there is a history of presbyters, of priests leading the church and even uh, being able to select their own bishop. Right. And, and today in contemporary practice, I think I've said this before in a previous episode, for my brothers and sisters who are in the, the, the Presbyterian Reformed camp, really and truly, they, they operate still on a, a bishop model. They just don't call it that. You typically have uh, a ruling elder, you know, and or ruling elders, and then you have a preaching elder and, uh, and a teaching elder. You know, it may be a different terminology, but essentially you have one uh, a pastor who is set aside, who's preaching the word, administering uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and he is basically the, the chief among equals, essentially the overseer for all the elders who are ruling with him. So you essentially have a, a miniaturized episcopate at each Reformed church. Right. So that being said, I just want to 
point out that although, you know, other churches may not have the title bishop, you still see someone is where the buck stops at. You know, it may just yeah. be a different title. And so really you get into more of the theological argument of apostolic secession, which we haven't really entered into yet on, on this essay. And uh, right. to that extent, you know, I don't want to jump in it here yet, but I think that simply criticizing the continent for, well, you just got rid of bishops. Well, that's, that's not really fair. They, they didn't necessarily get rid of it. They didn't have the opportunity to have one. And the Calvin himself wrote to uh, Archbishop Thomas uh, Cramer uh, on two things, mentioning that he wanted to do essentially a, uh, a universal council of the church of those Protestant bodies to unite uh, on the, the disputes they were having with Roman Catholics. And he wrote saying that uh, you know he would uh, look forward to having bishops on the continent. You know, uh, if memory serves, I've read the letter before. It's been a long time. Yeah, I think me it's too. On, I think it's on like CCEL on the, the Calvin uh, College uh, website. If anyone wants to, to try to pull it up, but uh, he mentions to Archbishop Cramner, you know, that you know, he would love to have this council. And I, it's either in that same letter or it's in one a little bit later that he mentions that he would love to have uh, a godly uh, Episcopal office restored uh, to uh, the continent. Of course, that never happens, you know, the way history, you know, occurs. But he was very much not in the camp of, you know, let's just burn the old order down and create something new. That's very, very much a more modern interpretation of the uh, the continental reformers than the actual historical evidence in the record demonstrates that they were attempting to follow the early church's uh, path uh, mm -hmm. with what they had in front of them. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to fairness to some of the maybe misconceptions on the part of high churchmen, uh, there are also a whole bunch of misconceptions on the part of low churchmen um, as well, along these same lines, which is to say... You know, why, if, if, if you're a Presbyterian and you discover this letter by Cranmer, then why on earth would you not want bishops now? You know, and, and why, and if you have functional bishops, why not call them that? You know, if you're a Lutheran and you have a district, pres, district president, why not call them bishop instead? You know, these are sort of weird, strange, ahistorical kind of aberrations in a way that were accidents of history, but now that we kind of can all acknowledge that, then then maybe um, it would be wise to move closer towards the sort of historic norm. Um, and that's just sort of my Anglican take on it, I guess. Uh, the other thing I, I thought was interesting, he says that the attitude of having, the practice of having priests under bishops was sort of uh, ratified by uh, pragmatism or the, by experience of being a good worth maintaining. And I wonder if that is something that we you know, can all agree with. Um, I certainly uh, have had experience of you know, really just great godly men who were bishops. Um, I've also encountered people who happened to occupy the Episcopal office who were probably not ready for it or just not have, didn't have the right temperament, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, it, and it, I say that not as just some uh, sort of rebellious individual, but, you know, one of the people in particular uh, sort of left their vocation and went off to become an Orthodox priest. So clearly, uh, I wasn't, you know, all wrong in my <laughs> in my appraisal at the moment, you know. So I think, you know, that's that's sort of an interesting claim at the very least. We're thinking about is like, does is because there's many people who are going to say, look, we should have we should have bishop, bishops because it's the right thing to do, but this other claim is we should have bishops because it works better. What do you think of that? You know. I'm kind of more of on the line of looking at uh, what Hooker said on the topic, and of course he's post, uh, he's, he's during the time of the Elizabethan uh, settlement, but post the break from Rome uh, for the Church of England, and 
from my reading mm. of Hooker, he really kind of says that, look, the, the Episcopacy does not belong to the, the essence of Christianity. It's not a, a requirement that you must have bishops, but it is for the good of the church to have bishops, and that's why historically there's always been bishops. So for me, it's really looking at, you know, is the office something that is provided for in Scripture? And when you look at the preface to the ordinal uh, for ordaining uh, bishops, it draws upon the historical references and the biblical reference that there's always overseers. And to me, just like you can have a failure of priests, of deacons, of laity, you certainly are going to and will, and we currently have, failures in the office of the Episcopate. So as someone who's in the Church of of, you know, uh, the Anglican Church of North America, you know, in the, in the Anglican Communion, I don't like to go around saying, well, we have bishops and you don't. As though <laughs> that's some sort of like badge of honoring. Because we have bad bishops and you don't. So, I mean, you know, like, sure. I don't say that like we ACNA just have so many bad bishops. I'm just saying that it's not really a mark of, you know, we are holier than thou. We have bishops, and you don't, so you're now unchurched. Well, now, the, the we a- have... ACNA exists because people decided there were bad bishops in the Episcopal Church, right? Exactly, and... yeah, you know. And, and so when it comes to the office of the bishop, you're going to have both good and bad bishops. The question is, is that an office that comes from Scripture is that an office that we have had, you know, since the time of the apostles in the early church? And there is always that office of overseer. That word overseer is coming from the Greek word uh, episcopus, you know, which is the anglicized version of the Greek word, but um, which is where we get episcopal, which is what we call bishop in English. Um, so, all that to be said, that's the reason why we have it. That's why we retained it. The Scandinavian Lutherans retained the same. And it's a biblical office that we see even Calvin and some of the other reformers mentioning they would like to see a return to uh, having bishops. And what you see end up happening is in certain aspects of reformed churches, they'll even start terming uh, their elders as overseers or overseers slash elders. And essentially you're mm-hmm. getting a, a bishop role just by another name uh, in some cases. So all that to be said, what it comes down for to me is that like you mentioned, and Moore does rightly say that the uh, Anglican Church, the Anglican Communion, does not simply unchurch you know, the continent by saying, well, you don't have bishops, then you're just not right. really part, part of the true church. They understood the historical you know, aspect of what was happening, what was going on on the ground uh, on the continent, that they didn't have the backing and the ability to, to have bishops uh, that were supporting them. Uh, but I think you brought up a good point today, uh, Jesse, on, well, we don't have those barriers anymore. You know, why not move back to uh, the model of having a bishop? And what I would argue is that in many cases, you know, de facto, many uh, churches that that are not Anglican churches already have bishops just by another name. Um, so let's just go ahead and complete the reform and, and have bishops once again in those churches. And the way that we as Anglicans could talk about this uh, to other communions is pointing back to the Chicago Lambeth uh, quadrilateral, uh, where it mentions that uh, the historic uh, episcopate uh, is uh, adapted um, in the local uh, uh, region and local geography uh, is something that we would wish to see retained in order to start and have ecumenical discussions. And it's it's way beyond my pay grade to to even have these ecumenical discussions. But to me, from a very pragmatic, dare I say, to use Morse terminology, uh, point of view. <laughs> uh, you know, talking with someone like the PCA, um, if the ACNA and PCA got closer and closer together, uh, it could be pointed out that, look, if you wanted to retain uh, your current uh, synods and the way that they are in place, then have the, the, the chief elder uh, be designated as the, the bishop. And, uh, and you're very much, you know, working the same model uh, as the Anglican Church, it's just that, that you have a bishop uh, within every uh, city, within every parish, which, dare I say, is the original vision of the early church, that you would have a bishop surrounded by his presbyters. So typically, one city, one bishop, instead of these giant dioceses that we currently have in the Anglican Communion, Roman Catholic, and uh, Eastern Orthodox Communions. 
yeah, hey, what could it hurt, Presbyterians, Lutherans? Uh, give it a try. See, see, what it, see what it's like to call the man bishop. And, you know, this is assuming that we're talking about male ministers, of course. Um, I do know ACNA is in talks or has sort of official ecumenical relations with both the PCA, the LCMS, um, the NALC. Are there, are there any other sort of uh, Protestant traditions you're aware of that there's sort of an official line of communication with right now? You know, that's a good question. Um, you know, we do have an intercommunion agreement with NALC, uh, the North American Lutheran Church, which is a, a smaller group that uh, broke off from the, uh, gosh, I'm going to butcher the abbreviation, the ECLA, right. I would say. Yeah. Uh, ELCA, Evangelical E-L-C-A. Lutheran Church. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, that's the equivalent to the mainline version uh, of the, the Lutherans, just like the Episcopal Church is the mainline version of the Anglicans. But uh, So we have like a, a tight bond with NALC. I'm glad to see that we've had probably the most fruitful discussions with LCMS, and they are not known for uh, doing uh, deep uh, ecumenical talks. I don't say that as a slight to them at all. They are very protective of what they believe in their tradition, and I respect that a lot. Uh, But we've had a lot of great conversations from what I've read in the reports. And outside that, I'm sure we're having other discussions, perhaps with like the the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But... um, Beyond that, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I've, I haven't heard if we're having any discussions with the Methodist Church. It's kind of surprised me because uh, any form of Methodism is basically, and I say this as a form of Methodist, but it's a basic knockoff of the Anglican Church. It retains, you know, <laughs> a lot of the elements of the Book of Common Prayer, so it seems like a natural place mm. to to start. They're sort of like like Evangelical Anglican Jesuits. Yeah. No, that's, that's very well put, actually. Like I said, as somebody who was born and raised in the, the Methodist Church, I, I think that's very true. I mean, for crying out loud, the, the two founders, inadvertent founders, they didn't want to be founders of a new church, but the Wesleyan uh, brothers, that uh, they both uh, died as Church of England priests, and uh, they modified the Book of Common Prayer for use in the American frontier, and that's how Methodism, ironically, Methodism, let's bring it back to this topic. Methodism is born because there was no bishops <laughs> at the end of the day. Right. Uh, you had the American Revolution. The Church of England was not sending bishops over. Sam Seabury had not been ordained yet post-revolution um, uh, to uh, help uh, consecrate bishops in what would become the Episcopal Church. So the Methodists, who are still very much you know, in the established church, or they were so far on the frontier, they were technically... Anglicans, but there was no local parish. They formed the Methodist Church, and circuit riders are sent out, and uh, and then you start having superintendents who eventually realize, let's just call a spade a spade, and they start calling themselves bishops. So there we go. <laughs> right, not unlike some suggestions we've recently made. And hey, let's uh, let's just admit that um, Anglicans could learn a little something from the circuit riders. Maybe I agree wholeheartedly. So um, let me go ahead and uh, take the wheel here and read another section, and let's see if uh, Moore has anything to say along the the lines of where we've been kind of headed here. Whatever uncertainty may hover about the earlier conception of the priesthood, there was practical unanimity in regard to the importance of the Eucharist administered by sacerdotal hands. Here, plainly, was a fundamental of religion, which, standing parallel with the Incarnation, in the prime factor in the sacramental function of the Church, as that is of its dogmatic theology, or, rather, it might be said that the two are not so much parallel factors as twin aspects of the one divine economy of salvation. The Anglicans widely admitted the real presence, not corporal, but spiritual, of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. Insofar, they tended away from Reformation Eucharistic theology towards the objectivism of Rome but in a different respect, namely in the emphasis on the need for the cooperation of faith in the communicant. 
they leaned towards the Protestant position. In regard to the spiritual fact behind the Eucharistic rite, they were thus in the line of the via media between the extremes. To speak locally of Rome and Zurich and their departure from the one might be measured by their comprehension of the other. The radical difference from both appears when we touch the question of theory. Well, Andrew, what say you about Moore's appraisal of uh, Anglican Eucharistic theology? Well, I noticed that the next paragraph is going to go even deeper. So before I jump on that, I will say, let me give him credit for one thing. He does point out that uh, Anglicans, uh, he quote, quote says, Anglicans widely admit the real presence, not corporal, but spiritual, of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, end quote. Very well said. I mean, it's right. drawn from the prayer book there. We admit to the real presence. You know, what is that real presence? We claim to the black rubric that it's not corporal, but it's spiritual. Also in the 39 articles, it's a spiritual presence that we are receiving, the actual body and blood of Christ, uh, through the participation in the Eucharist by having faith. And, you know, I would just say that earlier, prior to that, I want to comment on this paragraph. He talks about the importance of having sacerdotal hands. I'm not quite sure what he was intending there, but I think that the better way of, of saying it is that in order to have a Eucharist, the communion, the Lord's Supper, you have to have a minister who is duly authorized uh, to perform that act, which in the Anglican Church is a priest or a bishop. And going to our 39 articles, in Article 23, it mentions of ministering in the congregation. It answers this question of who, who can minister in the congregation. And it says, quote, It is not lawful for any man to take upon him the office of public preaching or ministering the sacraments in the congregation before he be lawfully called and sent to execute the same. And those we ought to judge lawfully called and sent, and sent, which be chosen and called to this work by men who have public authority given to them in the congregation to call and send ministers to the Lord's vineyard end of the article there and so essentially you have to be someone who's been lawfully called who's been given the duty and the therefore the office to uh, perform uh, the two key aspects of the reformation preaching the word of god and delivering the sacraments and so to go back to this you know administering with sacerdotal hands he may simply be talking about the fact that there is a laying on of hands when one is ordained into the priesthood or as a bishop and I would agree that you must have someone in the Anglican communion who is, has their uh, hands uh, laid upon them by someone under lawful authority, drawing from the Articles of Religion, who has commissioned them uh, for this office and duty of uh, delivering uh, the sacraments to the people and preaching the Word of God. But um, the other comment I'll make here is he talks about that there's a via media between the extremes of Rome and Zurich. I do agree that the extremes are Rome and Zurich, but again, I would say that the Via Media, for our Eucharistic theology, this is not my own opinion, this is something I've, I've drawn from, from reading from others, far more learned than me, is that between Wittenberg, between Luther, and between Geneva, between Bucer and Calvin, that we don't go so far as saying that you must believe and hold into the objective presence, the corporal presence, like the Lutherans do. And we don't say that it is pure... Um, you know, spiritual, uh, you know, in your heart, where something objective is not happening to you when you receive the Eucharist. But there is a spiritual and real presence that is in the Eucharist, and that is as far as we can define it, uh, and that you are receiving the body and blood of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because in the... So, Eucharistic theology is one of those issues, probably... I would say the greatest and most divisive issue in all of Reformational theology. Mm -hmm. um, this was an early, early, early stumbling block between uh, Lutheran and Reformed uh, parts of the church. And on both the Lutheran and the Reformed side, there was uh, more variety than maybe either side necessarily was ready would, would readily admit today. Um, and so, you know, even, you know, there are, there are passages from Calvin that sound, uh, 
more realistic than some people are, would be comfortable with. Um, and there are plenty of people who are not going to be very happy with uh, Zwingli's account as sort of a, a pure symbolic um, use of the meal. And then on the other hand, um, you've got this Lutheran emphasis on the reality, the objective reality of what's happening in the Eucharistic meal. And then you have this uh, theory of ubiquity that sort of is used to almost prop up. It's almost like, a, a from my perspective, it's a dogma that is invented to justify the the sort of the polemical case for how well how could Jesus be in all these places at once well it's because of this you know and and so in a lot of ways we have ubiquity on the Lutheran side we have the extra Calvinisticum on the reformed side and different dogmas that sort of crop like secondary and tertiary theories that crop up to um, explain a different emphasis and in some ways I, I think that this history of secondary theoretical um, Eucharistic dogmatism because they eventually do become dogmas in, in several of these communities uh, is unhelpful um, from the Anglican perspective while you had other people on the continent saying well at the end of the day this is a mystery um, I think that in Anglicanism we said that sort of thing and actually meant it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, I that, agree. And, and that's not to say that there weren't Anglican divines that had sort of their own treatises, but at the end of the day, um, there were also Anglican divines who were sort of pretty open to the fact that we don't need to know exactly how this works. And everyone in the end was happy to sort of accept the boundaries set forth by our formularies and sort of insofar as people were um, what they believed was within those boundaries they didn't necessarily uh, need to go bash each other over the head over it um, although you know later in the 19th century maybe the, the head bashing became more, uh, more popular <laughs> but um, as far as, yeah, kind of being a via media between Reformed and Lutheran perspectives, I personally, and I know you and I have sort of touched base on this issue recently, but I find the uh, Wittenberg con Concord as this sort of fascinating historic uh, moment in which, you know, people like Martin Bucer, who was, you know, people should know, historically, uh, Cranmer had a copy of the prayer book translated for Bucer to, to review and revise and sort of add his, his own touches to. Um, so he, he came to England, he was a German Lutheran Reformed scholar who was actually really, really, really passionate about uniting Protestants on the continent, who was eventually invited to England and uh, had sort of, you know, his hands are sort of felt on the prayer book right, but uh, he was involved in sort of this proposal where actually if you look at the people who, who sign it, and uh, there's an interesting article in the Calvinist International by uh, E.J. Hutchinson where he actually translates parts of it and then um, gives all the signatories and you've got Butzer, you've got um, gosh, you've got Luther you've got Melanchthon and a, a whole slew of, of uh, reformed guys as well so it's, it's just an interesting you know, the propositions that you see there um, I think are, are pretty uh, useful and um, things that I think could sort of be an early an early via media that maybe Anglicans could look to if they're interested in sort of positive statements about what that might look like. Although, um, you know, as I said before, I think there's um, there's also that element of mystery that needs to be admitted. 
Absolutely. And I would just agree and concur that if you want to see the Anglican position, go to the 39 articles and where it describes of the sacraments that the sacraments are effectual signs and it goes into the Lord's Supper and it essentially says what it is not is transubstantiation. It doesn't follow the the, uh, the theory uh, under uh, Aristotle's uh, worldview of describing what communion is. And then also looking at the catechism, which doubled down, doubles down on the sacraments are effectual signs, that it's an uh, outward, visible sign of an inward, invisible grace that you're receiving. And what are you receiving? By faith, the body and blood of Christ. And it's very much a spiritual presence, but very much real in what you're receiving. It's not some sort of pie in the sky and just kind of a, a noble remembrance or just thinking about Jesus like the, the stereotypical uh, evangelical uh, church uh, would do once a quarter maybe. We right. gotta do this because it's in the New Testament so we're gonna do it so let's think about Jesus. You know, It's much more than that. It's very serious, solemn and that's why the 39 articles warn that the wicked do not eat of the Lord's Supper because they're receiving damnation for taking the Lord's Supper uh, in vain and by not having faith and they're receiving the condemnation that St. Paul talks about in his letters. Absolutely. No, I agree. Um, so, boy, you know, I thought we would get further through old uh, Roman numeral 8 today than, than we uh, did, but I think we just found a lot to talk about and there was uh, plenty of fuel for discussion. Uh, Andrew, what do you say we we uh, call it a day here and uh, pick it up later? Sounds great. We'll pick back up on what more has to say about the Anglican view in more detail on uh, what happens with the Eucharist. Looking forward to it. Likewise. Take All care, right. Jesse. You too. Bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.